Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hey, Sam, I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I talked one year ago today, so we have timed this to broadcast back as as best we could. We're going to time this as, uh, right on the day when you and I talked a year ago. We were right in the thick of the pandemic, and you and I talked about uh, not storytelling, but we sort of ended up on a story listening sort of kick and uh, we had a great conversation. You're now employed. You're going to unpack everything that has sort of happened. But before we let you do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank Jason. It's so good to see you again and hear from you. Uh, it's been a wild journey since we last spoke. Um, yeah, my name's Sam Provenzano. Uh, I've been in the development field for about 11 years. Uh, I'm currently employed at the University of the Incarnate Word, uh, UIW in San Antonio, Texas. Um, it's the largest Catholic university in the state, and it is a Division One school as well. And uh, about ten thousand students, endowments nearing about one hundred and fifty million, and 
you know, it's definitely on the rise and it's been really exciting to kind of be a part of this new regime there. So, okay. So you moved from Chicago in, sounds like you left Chicago probably in the middle of the winter. Am I right? I did. Yeah. You moved I, to San yeah. Antonio, Texas. <laughs> so you must have acclimated really quick because you literally, <laughs> <laughs> you literally went from weather like it could be like four below. Right in the on the loop to mm-hmm. you're on uh, on the uh, what's it called the uh, the river walk and it's yep. 85 degrees the same day right <laughs> absolutely and right now we're nearing the hundreds so right it's, exactly. it's almost like with the winter a lot of folks stay in in Chicago and then the summers get so hot from what I've heard like come July and August that people actually like to stay in because even the pool doesn't even keep you, you know, cool enough. You're kind of just like, and I've experienced it. Like there's been a couple of times when I've walked outside my door and it just hits you like this. (laughs) And I'm just like, and I walked right back in my house. (laughs) I remember. Yeah, exactly. So I remember when I was a major gift officer, first time that this wasn't San Antonio, this was Dallas, but I flew through, I flew into Dallas in in July. It was July and it was hot as hell. And I remember driving through somewhere relatively, probably somewhere near down downtown, whatever that means. It looked like a ghost town. It looked like a ghost town because it was so hot. You could almost mm-hmm. see the heat in the air. And it was about six o'clock in the evening and they were probably in the middle of a, you know, a, a, a heat streak or whatever it's called. I mean, it was just so hot. And you're about how, how how many are you a couple hundred miles south of Dallas? I mean, you're even further down. Yeah, I am further down. So you so got you uh, got humidity yeah. too. I bet you've got a fair mix of humidity coming at coming we in do. there. A lot and, of humidity. Uh, um, been raining quite a bit this year. Um, yeah. And when it rains there, it's like hail. Like it's hailing. It's monsooning. <laughs> and when I see hail in the Chicagoland area, I'm looking for a tornado. So the right. first time it stormed there, I was like, you know, what is going on here? But I guess that's just kind of the way it is there. Okay, Sam. So nobody knew who Sam was a year ago. I got, I found you first. You've been on tons of podcasts since then, right? I think you knew me and Jim Langley and maybe a few other people. Absolutely. But after you were on my podcast, you didn't have a job. You were looking for a job and you went crazy. So tell me what happened. Tell our listeners, because you were like all over the place. Um, I remember one of my colleagues asked me, she said, who's this Sam guy? He's just like everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> so you tell know, us I the had, story. Yeah. Tell us the story of Sam second half of 2020 in the midst of a pandemic. Because I don't think a lot of people saw I saw a lot of people saw it, but probably a lot of people haven't heard from me in a while. So tell sure. us that story. Yeah. You know, I really felt like. After I lost what I thought was my dream job in, yes. uh, a couple of days before Christmas in 2019. Yes. Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, I then, you know, was on the job hunt. The pandemic started. I lost a couple of friends to the to coronavirus. Yeah. And and that kind of just made me say, okay, you know what? I need to separate myself from the field. Yeah. There's a lot of great fundraisers. There's a lot of people with even more experience than me. So I need to put myself out there. So yeah. I post started posting on LinkedIn in early 2020. I think I did 121 days straight at one point, um, talking <laughs> about tips and tricks. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, some stories and, and, you know, anything from how to qualify to, 
how to steward a donor. You just put to, your whole damn, I just I, put everything, everything you knew there. you put on there. Yeah, my experiences, my, yes. my, um, my downfalls, my successes. Yeah. Um, and it really started to pick up right when we started doing the podcast. I think that was in July. Yep. Yeah. And, um, but you know what? I had to do it August, September, October, November. And then finally around December, I had um, started interviewing again because I kind of took a break because there really yeah. wasn't anything going on. Yeah. Um, so I then started interviewing at three different organizations, two universities and um, a smaller nonprofit. Uh, and I ended up getting three job offers at one time, which yeah. for me was like, okay, this, all that pain, all that waiting was worth it because here I am feeling like I'm in control of my destiny now. So, yeah. you know, I really felt because of everything that had happened to me with just emotionally <clears throat> and mentally losing a friend, losing your job, watching the world go just go crazy at one point yeah. and people dying. I really was like, I need a fresh start. Yeah. And I decided to um, go to the university of the incarnate word in San Antonio. Uh, I worked at DePaul university in Chicago for about right. four years. And that was the largest Catholic university in the country. Yeah. So I really kind of felt like, okay, this could be a great fit um, for me just to get back in the game. Yeah. You know, I was so hungry to get back in the game, to start meeting donors and to start showing, showcasing my skills. And um, I decided to go there. And right away in January, I think I moved down there January 21st, started February 1st, and I'm almost at five months now. So it's been a crazy ride, but definitely well worth it. And I do believe that posting on LinkedIn networking with yourself, Jim Langley, some of the biggest people in the industry helped me get this job. Okay. So I remember in, so you and I had talked in July and everybody, all of a sudden in the fundraising, everybody in the fundraising community, unless they weren't on LinkedIn news, Sam was, and you got an interview with the local, with the local television station there in Chicago. And I remember seeing your interview on there and you had sort of a deer in the headlights sort of look on your face. And I'm like, okay, he's still trying to figure this out. He's still hunt. He's on the hunt. What was going through your head right then and there? Cause you've got yeah. to look at like, like you and I have been catching up here for about the last hour and you're, te you're totally a different Sam than, than, than like the guy that I saw on that television, television interview. And um, so what was going through your head then? That was probably what, September, October? Yeah, that was around September, October. Uh, uh, the One of the bigger stations reached out to me and they saw yeah. my stuff on LinkedIn. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. we want to, how are you doing? How are you on the job hunt? Tell us about it. Yeah. But you know what? It was, you know, I'm a former news anchor and reporter myself. So it was kind of interesting to be on the other side of things, first of all. Um, but second of all, I'm trying to find a job, but I'm also you know, cautious of, you know, saying too much or saying yes. not enough. Yes. So I think it was really hard. And I'm also trying to start a business at that time. You were Remember, trying to I figure something to out. Figure something yeah. out. So when you're in the in-between of trying to, am I going to start my own business? Am I going to look for a job? Am I going to, and then I'm trying to look for a job, but here I am teaching people how to find a job when I don't have one myself. <laughs> right. So you're kind of thinking like, why are they interviewing me? But at the same time, you know, so many people reached out and said, you know, you're motivating me, you're helping me, you're helping me get seen and heard on yeah. LinkedIn, 
you're helping me find people were finding <laughs> jobs before I was. Right, of course. <laughs> so yeah. I was helping people. They're getting a job. And here I am sitting there like, wait, I'm not getting a job. So it was a very interesting part of my life. Again, I had been through some things that I never had been through before. So it really was just everything was coming at me at once. And I did have to take kind of like a break from it all because I had to start really just getting into the nitty gritty of finding a job again. And we all remember during that time, there weren't many jobs on the table and there still really aren't. They're starting to now come into fruition. You're starting to see more job openings right now. But at that time, there really wasn't a lot. I think I just at some had to point, keep going. Sam, at some point there, I think I, I picked up on an idea. Like at some point, I don't know that I saw that you even wanted to get another job. At some yeah. point, you were still trying to kind of figure out if you were sort of, I mean, you were all over the place. I was, you know, yeah. I'm going to be a consultant. Yeah, I yeah. Consultant, am I going to do, you know, I started a LinkedIn group of, I got about 700 fundraisers in yes, there Yes, right you now. did. That's right. You started that group. Yeah. You know, so I was doing so many different things and I think it was almost overwhelming for me, you know, and I really had to just say, okay, I'm going to start. Um, focusing on my job search. And that was probably around November, December. Yeah. And then started getting those interviews. And, yeah. you know, and some of the people interviewing me, they saw my posts and they liked it. They liked my posts. I was getting people, hey, come interview yeah. for us. We like what you're talking about. I never really hide who I am. I'm very much the same person as I am right now, as I am with a donor. I love to listen. I love to create a relationship. I have you know, this ability to kind of just sense these people and who they are and, and really get to know them on a deep level. And I think that comes from just the experience of being a reporter where you have to build that trust in that 30 seconds, because uh, no one wants to talk on camera, but if they trust you and you have just this, I don't know, innate gift of just kind of being able to empathize and see themselves in you, I don't know. Um, it just gives me a slight advantage, I think. So you're uh, in my life and my career. Okay, so here we are a year later. You're five, almost six months into the new job. You and I have been talking for an hour. It sounds mm -hmm. like you've settled into this job. Um, sound? Do you feel like you're back in your zone? I think I'm better than ever. Okay. okay. I really think I'm stronger. I'm wiser. I'm yeah. more patient. Um, I think the world changed, and I think a lot of us changed with the world, right? Okay. And not that I'm a different person. I'm just more um, aware of, and more purposeful, more okay. purposeful. Yeah. Um, you know, at first, you know, when you're qualifying a donor, you know, it, it used to take me like two or three visits, you know, and some of those visits were taking a plane ride, you yeah. know, and, and you're taking the hotel rides and things like that, uh, hotel stays. Um, and now it's really asking the power questions getting them to open up on that first visit um, and really getting a sense of, hey, are they a major gift prospect or are they more of someone on the annual giving side? Yeah. Uh, or are they just someone that we just need to disqualify? Uh, they're in their 90s. They haven't been you know, really cultivated ever before. We're not going to get them now. So it's just being at peace with that and also having a leader uh, that understands that. I think yeah. my... Uh, Chris Gallegos, who is the vice president of development yeah. at UIW, understands that. Hey, you know what? That might have been something we missed out on in the old regime. 
you know, when we weren't really doing the kind of work that we needed to do. But I'm sorry, if someone's 90 years old, a lifetime giving of like $100, they're really not prospects. So you got to be able to weed them out. I would never want to take advantage of someone that's in their 90s talking about estate plans because that happens. Yeah, I've seen that. I've heard that happening in other universities and organizations where you have a gift officer talking to someone in their 90s about leaving them in their estate when they haven't given anything yeah. or really haven't had any affinity. I think that's almost like unethical. You're kind of taking advantage of that person. And you also got to know that they might have family members that are like, what? You just got a call from X, XYZ organization and they're talking about wanting you to leave us in their will. Yeah. What a, you know, that it could be a little tricky with there, but you know. Okay, so go go back yeah. go back to your job search. Was there a point at which So there's the interview on the CBS station or whenever wherever that was. Yeah. You know, October November whenever that was. Was there a point cuz this this is this is one of the things I want to impress upon a lot of cuz I know there's a lot of fundraisers out there who are perhaps sort of opening up to the idea that maybe my shop didn't know what the hell they were doing and so they're looking at options and they're seeing the job market sort of warm up. But if there's anything that I want to, and I talk, I remember talking to a to a candidate the other day, and 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 what if there was anything that I wanted to impress upon her, it was the idea that you guys have a hell of a lot of options out there. Was there a point at which you realized last fall, for example, before this shop in uh, San Antonio offered you this job, was there a point at which you realized you really had a hell of a lot of options? Yes, I think there was an opportunity, even like some sales folks are reaching out to me as uh-huh. well. So I thought maybe getting out of the business, maybe there's a reason why this sure. is all happening. Yeah. I thought consulting could be something really exciting. Yeah. I thought, you know, starting my own business could be something that's really exciting. Um, even television news was starting to reach back out to me again, like, hey, oh, wow. would you okay. be interested in being a reporter again? And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to end my career in major gift fundraising the yeah. way it ended at Haymarket Center, that last job I was at. Yeah. I wanted to, it's almost like you're seeing these athletes retire. They don't want to go down, you know, when they're, you know, number 100 in the world, in the tennis world, they want to go out on top. <laughs> yeah. And, and at that point, I was at that point in my life where I was like, oh my goodness, like I might, this could be the end, you know, like I didn't know what was going to happen. And I just said to myself, Okay, just keep going, keep putting yourself out there, and the right person in the right organization. But did you know? Okay, I knew you had options, but in September, October of last year, did you know you had options? You know, I want to say every time I, every time, every time I, yeah, every time I saw you post, I knew you'd land a job. You did. You told me that. I knew you'd yeah. land a job. I had gotten to know you a little bit over the summer. I sort of know your. I knew your tone. I kind of got a sense of who Sam was. I knew you were employable. I just kind of wonder if there's a lot of people out there that right now. And, and and it's interesting to hear you say a few minutes ago. You said you got a little. You got a little more purposeful. A little more intentional. And I think that's what primarily concerns me about those who are on the job hunt right now, is that they're gonna end up in jobs that they're going to be working for shops that do not have any idea how to navigate the space that we're in right now. And so if we can slow down, do something crazy like Sam did, you know, take six, nine months and just do some crazy shit on the internet, make a hell of a lot of friends, put some margin in our life, you know, might be a little uncomfortable, but if you land in the right place, 
if you land in the right place, I think you're going to end up in those roles a lot longer. I think it's going to be much more meaningful work. I mean, is that part of the story, Sam? I think that is part of the story. You know, I really was purposeful in the job search. And, and, and like I mentioned, pur- more purposeful in my role as a gift officer. Yeah. But I really wanted, the reason why I was putting it out there, because I wanted to work with someone that understood the way I worked. Yes. So they're like, oh, okay. You know, and then they're reaching out to me. Hey, I enjoyed your post, you know, t- and then I'm like, well, what did you enjoy? And they're like this and that. And they're like, okay. And then, you know, they're talking about the roles that they have open and right away, they kind of already have a sense of who I am. And then right away, I have a sense of who they are too, because they're liking what I'm saying. You know, I don't want to go to a place where, um, you know, it, it's money's taken for granted and you're just getting closing gifts left and right, left and right. Cause it's so easy. And the alumni are so ready. I like a little bit of the, the chase and the really digging in deep to close those gifts that, you know, one's really done before. Um, I like, taking my time with a prospect. I don't want to rush them. I don't want to force a prospect into a project or into something happening within the campaign. I like to take my time, listen to their story, find their passion, and then connect them to what's happening within the university. Yeah. And not a lot of places are like that. A lot of them, you, you're forced to kind of move a prospect to a place that they don't want to go to. Yeah. And then you, and then you, that's really a common thing. And just because someone graduated from the College of Law doesn't mean they're going to want to get involved with the law school. Just because they graduated in uh, the, they're a graduate of the medicine, the medical school doesn't mean they want to give towards that. I have a guy right now who's a really interesting prospect, a great person uh, who is, uh, you know, a doctor now, but his passion is in the arts, and I'm following that passion with him. And now we're talking about you know, a six figure gift potentially, potentially. So if I would have said, oh, we need this in the medical school, we need someone to give us this and please do it. We need it. We need it. Give, you know, please, gosh, you know, help us. That's desperate. That's not his passion. And I guarantee he probably would have walked away, especially now. These donors aren't messing around. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I I do know what you mean. So how, how did you... So you land, you land in uh, San Antonio in um, what do you say, late? late? Yeah, January, uh, late January. Yeah, so we so we got you, we got you, we got you around the new year. You land mm-hmm. in this new shop. I had a guest on here. I don't know, couple of couple, a month or two ago. She started her job. She started her new job on the day that the pandemic sort of shut the world down. Mm. So was your shop sort of alive and moving? And were you able to like, quote unquote, shake hands? Or are you literally starting this new job in January while everybody's still in this sort of this remote working sort of landscape and where you've got to sort of acclimate no differently than like you and I are talking is if I'm your colleague at the office, sure. because this is basically how the office works. Like what, Absolutely. how is that working? You know, the first month, it was uh, completely remote, yeah. maybe the first month and a half. And then we started doing like, you know, two days in the office, three days out for like for three months. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't get to really see campus. I didn't see, you know, there was nothing really happening on campus. Yeah. Uh, everything was kind of shut down. Uh, the vaccine started, you know, we started hearing more about the vaccine. Sure. And luckily, I was able to get that vaccine like pretty quickly. 
Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of the, the, you know, the students and the administration and things like that were starting to get their shots. And, you know, uh, and then just a couple of days ago, like last week, June 1st, um, we're like 100% kind of back on campus. Okay. Which, you know, is it you're having to change again. So I got used to being a remote worker and then I got into the hybrid model, found a rhythm. Yeah. And now I'm kind of back in the office finding another rhythm. Yeah. So it's a little difficult because I got used to working that hybrid model. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, I don't get to do that once in a while, but you know, the expectation is to be back in the office and that's a huge topic right now. Yes, you everybody's like, talking about that. One, everyone's right. talking about it. Yeah. And you know, I think in my mind, if you can do your job from, you know, remotely, if you can do your job at Starbucks or whatever, and you're doing great and you're hitting your goals and, you know, I think that it should stay that way. But, you know, I'm not, I don't have a say in that really. Um, and that's okay. Okay. So, t- so, so, okay. So you're in the job, you're back in the office now. So these donors, so you're, now you're talking to donors. These are, there's a new organization. Mm-hmm. Has any of these conversations sort of surprised you in an in, sort of an interesting sort of way? Like, cause you're talking to a, in, in early 2021, you're new on the job. You're talking to donors in perhaps Texas or maybe somewhere around the world, but you're also talking to sort of a post-pandemic donor, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Sort of anything surprised you about the way those conversations have sort of worked? You know, I'm really surprised that they're a little more direct than uh, I've ever noticed. Really? I think, yeah, they're very much more... I don't think I've heard that yet. ...honest, and yeah. they're a little more, just like I'm a little more purposeful with my work, Yeah, they're a little more purposeful oh, in great. philanthropy. Yeah, that's good. Unpack that. So that that's an interesting, interesting kind of thing that I've noticed. Men um, and women? Men and women. Yeah. Um, and I've also noticed that they're a little more hungrier to meet as well just to kind of get out of the house, just to kind of get back into the swing of things. They want to yeah. have that communication with people and the interaction and, and one-on-one. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, I met with someone that was like 82 years old or 78 years old. And, you know, she was willing to just meet with me for coffee. You know, she had her shot and she was so excited just to kind of meet with somebody from the university again. And someone okay, that but you're saying like, she's yeah. more direct. An 82-year-old woman, an yeah. 82-year-old woman meeting you for coffee is more direct than you think yeah, that she like, might have you know, been two years ago. I think so. She's like, you know what? Life is short. If that has taught us anything uh-huh. and taught me something, she's yeah. like, I've lost friends. She's like, I've lost family to this disease. And right. I don't want to waste my time with certain things in my life. Right. And philanthropy is important to me. She's like, Sam, if it wasn't important to me, I wouldn't be here. You know, I would just be with my husband in the in our retirement center, which is right next door from yeah. where we were at. So I thought that was interesting. I also noticed that if people are interested, they're really saying like, and this is maybe just my experience, like, you know, thank you for your call, but take me off your list. I don't yeah, want to hear it from sure. you know, I'm just we have other priorities right now in our lives and this university is not one of them. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, wow, okay. But at the same time, I also appreciate it. So much because then we're not having to put that person to another prospect pool and then they just keep being recycled back and forth because you know we don't want to let go of them but when the donor says take me off that list i'm not interested in in in, in learning more i'm taking them off that list you know in terms of calling now maybe keep them in the annual giving sure. you know, kind of sector 
then they can get those emails and donate when they want to. But I think people know uh, right now wow. what they want to give to, the difference they want to make. You know, that's that's interesting because there's a um there's there's an author I read a number of years ago. Uh, the name of the book I can't think of the name of the author, but the end of the, the name of the book is called The End of Advertising, mm-hmm. and in the guy's writing a book about uh, basically the way that um, pop up. You know how pop ups sort of show up on the internet, leave pop up mm-hmm. window things. And what he was realizing is is that um, the guy writing the book, he's an advertising guy, and he basically tells a story about sort of coming to the realization that technology just as quickly as they were able to design technology to create pop-up windows, they were also able to create technology to eliminate pop-up windows. And so, and and what he found himself doing, and I'm going to wrap this, wrap this around to being direct here real quickly. What, what he came to the realization was, is that technology was moving so quickly that it, that, that he found himself guilty of uploading this pop-up window sort of mm. eliminator pl- thing as the guy. And he's the very guy who has like invested his career in designing this shit. And so how does this relate to being direct? I think we're sort of at this time and place in history where on the backside of a pandemic, if Sam's calling us and we're going to be more direct and if we don't, and if, and if, and if Sam doesn't listen to you, um, we're going to create technologies and we're going to create platforms and we're going to create methodologies to basically prevent Sam from even knowing how to find us. You know what I'm mm. saying? Mm, so I it like just, you, you sort of, you hit, it, it, we're, we're at a place where technology has got this remarkable sort of level of capability in our lives, but we're also at a place where maybe they're going to be very receptive to taking that phone call. But if one and two of them are going to say no, and the other one's going to say yes, you sure as hell better be able to hear the ones that are saying yes versus hearing no. Does that make sense? I love that. Absolutely makes sense. And it's just, and also, you know, I've noticed that maybe it's just because I'm in Texas and it's not Chicago. Um, people are a little more apt to have conversations with me over the phone or or to take meetings. I, it's very interesting. I don't know if it's because San Antonio is a little smaller, smaller community or maybe it's a more tight-knit community. Yeah. The university that I work in is in smack dab in the middle of San Antonio. So there's a presence. Yeah. Like when I say I'm from, I work at UIW, people know it. Yeah. They, they feel a part of it. Yeah. Another interesting thing from working there is I've never seen so many friends of the university giving. People that did not graduate from UIW have no connection to it, but yeah. live in San Antonio and they appreciate what the university offers to its community to uh, especially the Hispanic community, first generation students. Yeah. Um, so it's really, that's, that's something that's interesting. You know, to Paul, it wasn't, I mean, I was in the loop campus and there's so many universities all around, but it's really interesting to see so many people supporting a university that they didn't, uh, you know, necessarily attend. Uh, yeah. I didn't get a lot of those prospects and I have some prospects that, you know, are friends of the university, but really appreciate what they're doing. And, they enjoy having, I think, uh, a university that has a great mission that's right in their backyard. So I think that's kind of interesting. So you I'm really sure. lean. So it sounds like you're really leaning into, despite the difficulty of the pandemic, despite the unemployment, it sounds like you're really leaning into your identity. Because when you and I talked before, you were it, it was fascinating because the conversation we had before it it was half about being a fundraiser and it was about half about you your previous work in being a journalist. 
Mm-hmm. It sounds like now you're really leaning into being a fundraiser. Am I yeah, right? I've re- yes, I've I've come to the realization that you know what, this is what I want to do. This is what I love. This is what I'm good at. Yeah, and I want. I'm hungrier. Like I'm so hungry to learn more. Yeah. So you know, I want to get stronger on plan giving. I want to sure. be more well rounded. Um, but I'm really just more purposeful. I, I'm on a mission and um, I'm on a mission working for a great mission. So um, I think it's a really good time. And again, the pandemic really kind of hit me in a, a strange way. And I really had to do some soul searching about my career and where I wanted to go. And uh, I really took this as an opportunity to have a fresh start and to also work for a place that's kind of still identifying who they are, you know, and they're, they're trying to be more donor centric. They're, they're in a middle, you know, they're, we're about to start a campaign kind of in the silent phases of the campaign. Yeah. So they're, you know, purchasing more property around the um, campus, which is great. So I think I'm really at a point where I can make a huge impact. Um, and, and I want to make an impact everywhere I go. I don't want to be just raising a hundred thousand dollar gifts that are taken for granted. You know, that it's just so easy to kind of get. And there are universities where their prospects are doing so well and they've been so, and they've been stewarded correctly over their lifetime that they're making those big gifts. But, you know, DePaul, that wasn't the case. That's mm. not the case at UIW. I mean, when you're working at a, at a Catholic institution, a private institution, the game is a little different. And it's not saying that the work is different, but... I think you're going to have to dig even deeper to get those six-figure gifts, get those endowed scholarships, because you're dealing with a lot of first-generation folks. You're dealing with a lot of people um, that I don't know. They 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 went there for the mission. You know what I mean? They they chose to go to a private first university. generation. Yeah. First generation. What? First generation first students. Generation students. Yeah. For and first <clears throat> person in their family that's ever gone to college. And they're, you know, they don't know how to even how to deal with having wealth. So they go and they graduate and but their family never, you know, gave back to other because they couldn't afford to. They weren't philanthropic because they had no money. But when you go to some other universities where they come from money, they they see their parents giving. They see their grandparents going to galas or and, and you know, supporting different causes, whereas when you're a first generation student for the most part they didn't have that experience they grew up kind of in poor or or lower middle class and they didn't come from a world of <clears throat> philanthropy I've never, I've never had that come before i let you go i've never had that conversation do you know sam when you're on the phone or you're interacting with a donor who is essentially what you and i would might sort of piggybacking on the notion of being first generation that's yeah. essentially a first generation major donor you know, mom or dad. Did, there you did, go. I love that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do, do, I, I love mean, how you put that together. That's what yeah. I was trying to say. Do, That's what I was trying to say. Do you know? Yeah. What does a first generation major donor look like? They tell me. They're like, Sam, you know, I. I don't my, know how to do you know, this. <laughs> yeah. They're like, Sam, my parents, my parents grew up with nothing really. And, you know, and they were working all these jobs and trying to, you know, go to get us to get a great education, at least, you know, in, you know, grade school and middle school and high school. And their parents are working and hustling. I mean, they were making the best effort they could to support their kids. Yeah. And that work ethic is something that's so cool. To, they would talk about that. And now that they're at an opportunity 
they have money now and they want to make a difference. Whereas, you know, their parents weren't able to do that. And they kind of tell you that story, or at least you get the sense of that story. And then you're kind of walking them through what is, they're like, well, what does an endowed scholarship mean? Or what is, you know, tell me what, what philanthropy is, what, what is it? And you're kind of walking them down this path and you're doing it together. And then they realize that, oh my gosh, I can have that big of an impact if I make this gift. I'm like, yeah, like, oh my gosh, I never had that opportunity. You know what I mean? So I I do know what you mean. And I think that's what, and I have not put that into words. It seems like you and I did something like that in the last, we always do this. I say something and then you're able to kind of condense it a little bit for me and then it makes sense. So in the midst of this pandemic and you saw it too, there's been a lot of animosity towards people of wealth and sort of in the, in the context, we were talking about this before we hit the record button sort of the mm-hmm. the tension with the you know the super wealthy and how this relates to our uh you know aspirations with diversity equity inclusion and stuff and and in the midst of that animosity that i sort of sometimes pick up on i kind of sometimes wonder how many of us realize on the receiving side those of us who are doing the fundraising i don't think we have as many like a lot of this animosity is directed towards those families who we would typically say have generational wealth, which means they're not first generation major Mm -hmm. donors. But am I right when I say, Sam, that first generation major donors are sometimes highly, highly impressionable people that can be kind of guided and directed towards opportunity that, I mean, I mean, isn't that what is, some of the more life-giving work is that when you're sitting there with a first generation, probably some of the greatest thrills I've had in my work. Some of the greatest joys I've had is when I'm Mm. sitting down with a, with somebody who probably fits the bill of a first generation major donor, Mm -hmm. who's perhaps writing a $50,000 check for the very first time in their life. They've never done anything like this. They know how to spend that kind of money in every other context of their life. But writing a fifty thousand dollar check to a you know institution like yours is something they've never done, and you, as the sort of the sage in this case, you know the coach, the whatever, the sort of the, almost like a mentor, yes. can, can direct can direct this giving in all sorts of ways. Am I right? Yeah, and it's such an amazing feeling, and that's when you say to yourself, "Ah, this is why I'm doing this kind of work." You know what I'm saying? Like, it's important to me. Whereas being a reporter, I was just kind of in this world of of almost like, I don't know, just doing something that I wasn't really loving. I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to make. But when you're working, especially with someone that is kind of a first generation donor, and they are able to write that check, and and then they also see the impact. Because remember, when they write the check, they're excited. You can see it in their eyes. But then it's also up to us to steward those donors and to make sure that they see the impact that they're having. And when they see the impact that they're having, that also makes a huge difference. And then we're talking legacy donors, right? We're talking about leaving, you know, uh, this university or organization in their estate, in their will, because we made such an impact on their lives and they made such an impact on the organization. And um, I think that's, one of the coolest things you can do is is to walk down a philanthropic journey uh, with a donor, first generation donor, or a donor itself, and just yeah. kind of let them know that you know we're in this together, kind of thing. Well, and I think that's part of the joy too, is that 
a first-generation major donor, as we're describing, oftentimes has not had some of the lousy experiences with people in these roles previously. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, if you're if you're the one privileged to sit at that table and persuade Mrs. Smith to give you $50,000 for this initiative that you have at the college, you know, she's never done this with anybody else. So she's never necessarily been let down because she doesn't really know. And and, and we all know stories about being, you know, major donors being let down. And we also yeah. know stories about fundraisers being let down by donors. But in that particular case, you're sitting in a role that as long as you get this thing right, it's like any other relationship that can flourish. You know, this thing can flourish and it can flourish for years. It can flourish for years. It's that it's that one stone, right? And then just kind of like that domino effect. It just you can make that impact on them. It's a lasting impact. And even if you leave the university or the organization that you're in, right? I think that you've set them up to to really be to make them feel like they're part of the big family. They're a part yeah. of this organization, and and um, that's really important to me. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not saying that it's not it's easy to get a major gift when you're working at a university that has all the bells and whistles and things like that. I'm not saying it's easier, but I'm just saying it's different. It's a different experience. And um, I do believe, though, slightly not easier, but I do believe that you got to dig a little deeper. You got to dig a little. You really see how far or how strong your skills are or what yeah, you have but, to work on. But, 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 but isn't that the fun? Right. So, but I think that's what, uh, so I've been saying, Sam here on the podcast for the last several months that I think fundraising in the midst of this post pandemic sort of the reality is going to be more qualitative. And that is going to require digging deeper because that's where the qualitative aspects of life, you know, the quantitative aspects tend to be very shallow and if you want to build a qualitative relationship, you're going to go deeper. But then going back to what you said about 20 minutes ago, if the donors are being more direct with us and saying either, yes, engage me or leave me alone, and we're able to listen to hearing those two cues, um, you know, there, there, there's plenty of people who I don't think in our industry yet have figured out that by allowing, and I, we had a guest, the guy that uh, I told you this earlier, we had a guy at the Naval Academy on here um, who sort of almost said the same thing. They started having conversations in the last year with the people who wanted to have a conversation with them. And they let the other people off the hook and they raised the same type of money. You know? Absolutely. That's so, such a good point. Yeah. So, like, let's talk to the people who want to talk to us. And perhaps put the and I think I think if you think about this too, we're sort of drawing, we're sort of putting the emphasis, uh, we're, we're we're focusing our attention on the experience in some ways of the fundraiser, which is I think some of the stuff that I think we need to. Re- we're, we're so much about the donor's experience, but I think if we really make your experience right, um, I mean shit, Sam. If 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 we make sure that Sam's experience as a as a donor-facing fundraiser interacting with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I think Mr. and Mrs. Smith will be taken care of just fine. Absolutely. I really believe in that. I think a happy fundraiser, a uh, motivated fundraiser, a hungry fundraiser makes the best fundraiser. Yeah. You know, and if you're, yeah, you want to have a great experience. As a, You don't want to go into something and right away you're like oh my gosh because when you're miserable and then you got to go out and kind of 
showcase what your work, you know, your organization and you're not in a good state of mind, you're not happy. Yeah. It kind of make they can sense that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like if I can sense that they're they're, you know, I have my own gifts, they have their gifts too. Like, oh, this kid's miserable. This guy, you know, isn't passionate about what he's doing. So yeah. I think it's important to, you know, have a leadership that sees things in you and, and understands your rhythm and how you like to work. You know, I'm not an office person. Yeah. I don't like being yeah. stuck into an office. I'd rather go to a Starbucks and do my work. Yeah, sure. Because essentially what I'm doing is calling and emailing to schedule visits. Yeah. Right. And that's really what my main goal is. And if I'm not able to do that in an environment where I'm comfortable, you know, that's going to show on the, on the numbers. Well, Sam, we have, I've got to let you go. We're, sure. at, we're at the 45 minute mark. We lose we our listeners at forever. that point. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you look like you're in a pretty good place. Um, I'm watching your body movements. I'm looking at the guy on the camera. We have yet to have a cup of coffee in person. We're going to do that as soon as, uh, uh, I'm, yeah, we're going to do that soon enough. <laughs> um, but my guess is, Sam, there's probably somebody listening to the conversation. They probably know who Sam is because you let everybody know who you were for the last 12 months. But they want to catch up with you rather than listen to me. So how would you suggest that they reach out to you? You know what? Find me on LinkedIn. Sam Provenzano, shoot me a message. I never do not respond. Uh, my email is sam.proven, P-R-O-V-E-N at gmail.com. And uh, if you ever, if, you know, for anyone that needs help, you know, finding a job or needs just that extra motivation, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, it has been a pleasure. You're always welcome back, brother. Thank you, Jason. This is so fun. Thank you so much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.